Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 17 through 29. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who, was set, who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today's passage is considered to be one of the most challenging passages in all of the Gospel of John. It speaks of the triune relationship between the Father and the Son. And I just want to say as a qualifier to begin this message is that I am not going to cover one tiny, like infinitesimally small amount of material on this topic. It is grand. Um, there are tomes written on the topic of the Trinity. And so if you do have any questions, first, um, I will lead you to some books, some really good ones. Secondly, please ask them in the WhatsApp uh, sermon questions section and I'll do my best to answer them. But I really want you to know that um, the significance of John chapter five is grand and great. And it actually makes a huge difference in our faith as a Christian. So I hope you will sort of walk alongside with me as we explore this incredibly glorious topic of the Trinity. We're going to look at three truths from this particular text. First, in verses 17 through 18, I would say the most important truth, the Son is equal with the Father. Second, in verses 19 through 20, the Son is loved by the Father. And then third, in verses 21 through 29, the Son given complete authority from the Father. So first, the Son being equal with the Father if we look at verses 17 through 18, there's a, a lot happening there. And Jesus says, 
My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If you can recall from last week, we saw the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man. He had been paralyzed for 38 years, quite a long time. And Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, the seventh day. And so the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and everyone who was there, uh, they accused Jesus of breaking the law, God's law. And they said, because you broke the law, you are going to, you deserve consequences. And not only that, the man picked up his mat on the Sabbath. Now, if you track back to the original law that was given by God regarding the Sabbath in Exodus 20, you'll see that nowhere does it talk about healing or picking up a mat. Simply, they added laws to the Sabbath and believe that extrapolating what it means to not work on the Sabbath, to rest, had these type of areas where you must commit not to do. In their mind, Jesus broke this. And so therefore they accused him of something, of being a lawbreaker. But verses 17 through 18 sort of pushes the envelope of that. In these two verses, you'll notice that the Jewish leaders, they hear something when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. What they hear is that Jesus is equating himself with God. And you might think to yourself, I don't really see that in what Jesus is saying. Like, that doesn't sound like that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But there's a reason why they're not just pulling that out of a hat or something. It's not random. Actually, the statement that Jesus is making is equating himself with God. And it was quite startling for the Pharisees as well as for anyone who heard who was a Jew. When Jesus said, my father is always working, Jesus was calling God my father, a possessive. And they knew that by doing so, he was equating himself with God. That's what they claimed to be, that Jesus was saying. Because in Jesus' day, if you were a son, and in particular, an only son, you had the rights, the privileges, the name, the authority. Basically, you were in every way representative and truly the father. When the father died, the son takes over, and he in every way is the father in all rights and privileges. So one, the Jews re recognized that, they realized that. But it wasn't just about authority, rights, power. It was also the context of when Jesus said this. Remember, the issue is the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day after creating all the universe. And so when Jesus is saying, my father is working until now, meaning he worked back then, he continues to work. He works now providentially by sustaining life, by giving people and, and ruling and keeping the stars in place and doing all that he does now. But until, that word until reflects back to the past. And it reflects to the fact that God created the world in six days. And so when Jesus is saying, my father is working and I am working like the father, similarly, 
He's saying that he was as well there working, working until the Sabbath rest. So in their mind, they're hearing, not only is he saying, my father, but he's saying he was creating alongside the father. He was the creator. And surely in that sense, that is pure blasphemy. In Jesus' day, if you were living at this time and you said anything like this, you would be stoned to death. They would automatically pick up rocks and stone you to death. And Jesus realizes because, one, the Pharisees, when they said this, they didn't say it again offhand. They meant it. They knew he was equating himself to God. And then Jesus, he doesn't in any way renounce that idea. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to say that I'm not God. He just simply accepts it. So Jesus, as, as a self-attestation, he's saying, I am God. And it made them furious. You know, the, the idea of Jesus as God, it's such a re reprehensible idea for the world that we live in. It always has been, it always will be. If you've ever spoken to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, you might have encountered this. I've actually had conversations with both. One time I was talking to a Mormon. Um, we were, he was telling me, oh, I'm a brother in Christ too. And I said, no, I don't think we believe the same things. And he said, well, I believe that God sent Jesus into the world and he died for our sins. And so if you talk to a Mormon, they will have very similar language. But there's one area that if you were to say this, they would suddenly turn on you. And it is, Jesus is God. See, they believe Jesus is a God. And it's okay to believe Jesus as a God. But once you say Jesus is God, suddenly things change. And so in this conversation I was having with this Mormon, once I said Jesus is God, he tried to refute what I was saying. I countered back with scripture. Eventually he got angry. I don't know if you've ever seen a Mormon angry. Doesn't happen too often. They're really nice people, really nice, really moral, until you say Jesus is God. I've also had opportunities to speak numerous times to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, both at my door, in my house, I've invited them in. A friend of mine and I, we went to what's called, a, not the Kingdom Hall, which is the local gathering of Jehovah's Witnesses, but a convention hall, which is a regional gathering. So. He and I, we decided to go to this convention hall in New Jersey, and we started, we just were showing them John 1-1 one, one and talking about Jesus is God, not a God, but is God. And initially, they were very receptive until we started arguing Jesus is God, and eventually they kicked us out. You know, it's like, you, got, you cannot breach that topic. You can't go beyond that line. You can't say Jesus is God. If you talk to a Jew, which is we're seeing here, clearly that's an area where it gets you stoned. They will desire to kill you, at least in Jesus' day. Not today, but they definitely would not like that. A Muslim, same thing. So it's this idea that Jesus is God. You can accept Jesus as a really good teacher. You can accept Jesus as a rabbi or as a prophet, a miracle worker. You can accept him as even a God, an indefinite article, small g, God. But you cannot say Jesus is God. Because if you say Jesus is God, 
there's a problem with that, and according to the Bible. The problem is this. The way you really hit a roadblock is the cross. Because if Jesus is God, but yet he died on a cross, that just seems to be such a paradox that cannot be overcome. It's so difficult to do so. Why is that so hard? According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. The reason it's a stumbling block is that anyone who, was, who died on a tree bears the very curse of God. So for the Jew, someone who died on a tree and to say that they're God, you could see why it's utter foolishness and blasphemy. For the Gentile, God dying on a cross, ask, ask Friedrich Nietzsche what he thinks about that idea. It's ludicrous. It's preposterous. It's nonsensical. And yet, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. In fact, the whole of the Christian faith is rooted on this idea that God himself died on a cross. Isaac Watts, who has written many of our hymns that we sing, he wrote, the really renowned hymn, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. And in that is this line, when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. We've sang this hymn before, many times. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about that for a moment, to think that he's saying, God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sins. When we think of God, we tend to think of the word God as God the Father. And we don't often think of God the Father dying for our sins. It would be wrong to describe it that way. But when we think of God the Son, and that's why it is good sometimes to refer to Jesus not simply as the Son of God, but God the Son, that he would die for our sins and he is mighty God himself. That line is such a conundrum, a paradox for so many. And yet that's exactly what we stand on. I really like the way um, author A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, the atonement in Jesus Christ's blood is perfect. There isn't anything that can be added to it. It is spotless, impeccable, flawless. It is perfect as God is perfect. The good news of the gospel of Christ is rooted and founded upon the idea that God himself gave his life. Without God being perfect God, sinless, dying and bearing the weight of our sins, being our substitute, we would still be stuck in our sins. Because then really it begs the question, couldn't anyone die for someone else's sins? Why couldn't I die for your sins? Because if Jesus is only a rabbi or a miracle worker or a prophet or even a God, then surely anyone could die for anyone's sins. What makes it possible for our sins to be done away with once and for all is the fact that God himself, perfect, flawless, spotless, sinless, died for our sins, took our place. The implications of this is this. There is no sin... If you are born again and you believe in Christ, there is no condemnation, no guilt that should ever overtake you. Nothing. You should not fret over your sins. 
doesn't mean we don't grieve over our sins, mourn over our sins. But once we believe in Christ, they have been done away with forever. And it took God himself to do that work. So once God, perfect God, gave his life for you, you are absolutely free from the power of sin and death, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation. Only God himself can do this. So we must not overemphasize the constant weight of guilt and the punishment of sin as if we're bearing that punishment ourselves over and over again. Jesus bore that punishment for us. That's an incredible freedom that we who are in Christ have. And rather than fretting over our sin, may we rejoice in who God is and what he has done through his son. So that's sort of the the first reality, you might say. The son being equal to the father makes the gospel so good. Secondly is that the son is loved by the father in verses 19 through 20. Again, we read, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. We know, according to that first part, that Jesus is equal to the father in divinity. But there is a functional difference between the father and the son. According to this passage, the son, Jesus, willingly submits to the father's will. If we look at the phrases that describes the relationship between the father and the son, John writes, uh, Jesus says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. That's submission, perfect submission. And then the father loves the son. That's perfect love. Perfect love, perfect submission. That should be something that sounds familiar if you are familiar with scripture. Those words, love and submission, are at the root of basically every human relationship. If we abuse those words, distort them, misunderstand them, it leads to terrible conflict and abuses and all sorts of horrors in relationship. In our world, love and submission is not properly and perfectly applied. There are so many areas of the human relationship where love and submission is a key part of that relationship. For many of us, you might think of marriage, and that is definitely the case. Marriage is that one place where love and submission, we talked about this last Sunday, is significant as a foundation piece for the relationship between a husband and a wife. But it's not just marriage. Parents and children have this, these two characteristics, these two um, traits, foundational traits as a part of relationship. The church and its leaders and its members, governments and citizens, employers and employees, the list goes on and on. Love and submission, it's so essential, so central, and yet it's something that is constantly distorted over and over again. And because of this distortion, this beautiful paradigm that is meant to model and reflect the eternal relationship between father and son, it's been so corrupted in our world that it's led to all sorts 
of trials and tribulations and horrors. Now, there are many areas that we could reflect on. I'd like to look at just one area, maybe a couple more. We'll see how it goes. Where love and submission it just seems to go off the rails, in a sense. Marriage. In marriage, we're told by the Apostle Paul these very two ideas. In Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When you read these two verses, what sort of happens in your heart? What's stirred up in you? Is it joy? Is it delight? Or is it trouble? Are you troubled by these words? When wives, when you hear wives submit to your husband, do you think, how dare you say that? Husbands, when you hear husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, meaning you put your spouse, your wife above yourself. Not just when the burglar breaks in, but also when you got to do the dishes and when you have to, as I shared last week, as you have to bathe your children every week, and if you have to do all the different things that you should do, you must do. Is there a sense of delight and joy in doing so, or do we resist? You know, this is a, a heart that does not just come about in marriage, it comes about in life. The youngest of children, they are not taught to say no. It just flows out of them. That you can do all you can to try to protect them, but even at the smallest of ages, no. And I always think of it as, you know, Sue and I talk about it as the salmon breach. Stiffen their back, no. They, they, you try to hold them, but that's when they stiffen their back so that you can't hold them anymore. It's that strong. And this is at one year old, an infant, it's startling. The lack of submission. Now, that parent is there to love, to protect. If they say, you need to eat this rice cereal. I don't remember those times. You know, This is for your benefit, for your growth. And they say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's there, and it's not taught. That lack of submission and trust. And then, is me the parent? Hard to love such a person. I don't want to love, I, my, I have a no heart too. And I don't want to love this child. And so anger comes in. That's in parenting, that's in marriage. There is a, I believe this with all my heart. You submit, you love. But I tell you that when in the thick of a conflict, the last thing I want to do is love my wife as Christ loved the church. I, I'll love my wife how I feel she should be loved, not as Christ loved the church. That second part, wow, that is defining. But the reason why that phrase is there is because it reflects who God is. God the Son, God the Father. I think it's very important to note that the Apostle Paul, who is writing these verses, is an unmarried man. Where did he get 
these words? Did he just come out with a feeling and say, this is what I think husbands should do and wives should do to have a really flourishing marriage? That's not how it works. It, it wasn't just a figment of his imagination. What he did was he had words such as what Jesus is saying in John 5. When he sees the relationship, and you see it in that chapter in, in Ephesians 5, that everything is rooted on creation, how God is in his character, in his nature. And so what, he say, what he's saying is that when I see the modeling of what it is like for the father to love the son and the son to willingly submit perfectly to the father and the father to perfectly love his son. Suddenly, by the Holy Spirit, he has this picture of saying, husbands, this is how you must love your wife. And wives, this is like Jesus submitting to the father. This is how you must submit to your husband. And when you have that, and if it's done progressively, growing in grace, learning, I mean, with our brokenness, failing, but then growing, repenting, confessing, growing, trusting, that the more we do that, the greater joy, the more flourishing, the greater delight, the promises that are fulfilled in that. It is not easy. There's a death process behind this. You're dying to yourself, both. And this is the case for every human relationship between love and submission. There are these idols in our hearts. We love ourselves, our own control, our own way of doing things. And what God is doing is he's trying to break us and show us that to hold on to these idols, it is self-defeating. We are literally shooting ourselves in the foot by doing this. But if we simply trust in him, if we believe his word and who he is. The promise is unspeakable, unending joy. But with that joy comes sometimes in order to get there, there has to be a dying to yourself, a death. And my friends, death is painful. It hurts. When you lose a bit of your sinful self, when that is being dealt with, it is no different than your physical body undergoing real difficulties. Jesus, when he's at Gethsemane and he's praying, he submits to the Father's will. He says, Father, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He is praying, he's praying so hard that literally blood is coming out of his pores because of the crushing weight of the burden of the guilt of our sin that he's going to bear. And the submission to his father's will, despite all of that pain, he submits. Does he do it because he just has to grit his teeth and say, I will do this. I hate these people. They're miserable, but I'm going to do it. That's not what he does. He trusts the father's will. He trusts his word. He trusts his love. He trusts that God's word is perfect. His will, his plan is perfect. His love for him is perfect. So therefore, he knows, despite the sorrows, he will submit and trust. And it takes that type of dying. When he goes to the cross, three days later, what happens? He's raised from the grave. And then John 19, 20, 21, just described so beautifully. 
life eternal. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I love that verse because it has these two words in it, and they just seem so paradoxical. Joy, cross. Cross and joy should not go together. It's misery and cross go together. Evil and cross, suffering and cross, torture and cross, but joy and cross? The only way these two words go together is if there's something beyond the cross. The cross shows there's something greater. And in verses 21 through 29, which we're going to look at next, there's no wallowing in self-pity by Jesus. You know, he's not submitting and saying, oh, well, all right, I'll do it. And sulks off and becomes really sullen and angry. That's sort of our temptation, isn't it? When we submit, okay, okay, you got me. I'll do it. But you, you got to be, you know, next time, what about me? Next time, you have to listen to my plan, my way. But if you look at how Jesus responds, this submission is not out of self-pity. It's trusting. It's submitting, knowing that God is absolutely perfectly true to his character and his promises. And you know what? It stands on verse 20. The father loves the son. Now, these two ideas within the mysterious economy of God, the triune Godhead, both of them stand independently and perfectly interlinked. The father loves the son. The son submits to the father. The, the father loves the son, and he's not saying, I'm going to love the son only if he does these things. We know that the father loves the son, and it stands on its own. The son submits perfectly to the father. And again, it's not standing on, well, only if God loves me. It, he submits to the father. But yet both are also linked together and work together and perfectly are interlined, interactive uh, with one another. The outflow of this type of love and submission is John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, who has received the full perfect love of the Father, is able to go forth to love others. It's the only way. You know, actually, it's impossible to love someone like fully with unbridled love without having the love of the Father in them. And I've seen it time and time again. You know, I've seen it, so, you know, another Villafranca story. We go to um, Villafranca and we see, talking to Pastor Gabi, and you know, the last time I was there, I, I don't think I realized this, but when I was there, when we went to Ukraine together, uh, that year we got, he had 13 orphans, and I thought, Wow, 13 orphans, that's just... And then, of course, two adults, so 15. I was thinking, how are you going to do this? This is just... So we go this time, and I don't know why, but it didn't really hit me until literally like a week ago. You know, everyone on the team is going to be surprised, but I didn't realize there were two more. Two or four more? I don't know. Two or four more than what we brought the last time. And I just think to myself... How, is, is there ever going to be an end to you picking up orphans? Like, how can you keep on doing this over and over? You're getting 
more orphans. Where does this come from? The only way this is possible, and if you talk to him, it is solely based on the Father's love. There's no other reason you would do this. It's chaotic. As I've talked to him numerous times just alone using our SAI apps because neither of us can speak our languages. And just hearing him talk about the love that he has for the Savior, and that is what flows out to say, I can take on more. He and Anna doing that. That's why TV stations go to his house and say, what are you doing? You know, in a country where less than 1% are believers of Christ, and people essentially think of Christians as crazy people, strange, weird, but suddenly when the love of the Father strikes someone so much that they're willing to go and take in an extraordinary amount of people into their own house and live their life in chaos because of it, there is no other explanation except for the fact that God is here, that they love Christ. Because a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. When you receive the love of God, and that love of God is derivative. It comes from God himself loving within the triune Godhead. Here's the thing about God. He does not need your love or my love. He doesn't need us to worship him. Our songs here, it's not like he's going, I really need these people to sing these songs to me because if they don't, I feel a little bit less God today. That's just not who he is. He doesn't need us to do missions work or to tithe or to uh, serve children or go overseas or take in orphans or do anything, get, get involved in helping uh, children who are trafficked. He doesn't need any of that. He is absolutely perfectly satisfied with himself. He, when he loves within as father loves son, son loving the father and the spirit, there's an extraordinary infinite amount of love within the triune Godhead. But what God does is he allows us to experience that love. And by doing so, it's transformative. It satisfies our souls. It gives us a delight far greater than anything this world could offer us. Everything this world offers us is secondary. It, it's just a small foretaste. But what God gives us is something that is beyond this world. So, we see, though, that this flows then to authority. The son given complete authority from the father. It's not just love. It's the power that flows out of this love. Verses 21 through 29. I, I can spend so much time here, but I'm actually going to spend almost the, the least amount of time here because there was so much that it would have taken another few, day, few sermons to do this. So rather than making this a huge sermon series in this small little area, just going to go over it very briefly and focus on one or two points. We're going to look at, um, I'm going to just read to you verses 21 through 29 in little sections. Because I think in, in a sense, they're all talking about the authority of Christ. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life, life to whom he will. Verse 22 and 23, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him 
who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 26 to 27. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then verses 28 29. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What we see here is power, authority. There's a, a, a couple of things that I want to point you towards. If you look at this idea of verse 25, um, 25 and 26, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. I mean, stop and think about that for a moment. Some of you have lost loved ones. You've been at funerals. You've seen a coffin, sometimes an open coffin. You've seen someone who has died. Think of trying to talk to that person. You might talk metaphorically to that person, but you, you're not really having a conversation with the person. What Jesus is saying is that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. How is that possible? Either Jesus is crazy, as C.S. Lewis notes, you have to either see him as lie, uh, lunatic, liar, or Lord. And so this is one of those lunatic phrases. You know, it's one of those... Jesus is saying the dead are going to hear his voice. Either he's a lunatic or he's Lord. He's God. Only God can do this. Now, if you also look, it's verse 28 and 29. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. This is in every way aligned with Genesis chapter 1. When God speaks, life comes to being, the fullness of life. And only God can do that. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be life, there is life. So again, you see here the full authority that God gives his son. And this is whom we worship. This is whom we place our hope, our trust in. And this is also every reason why when we think of, let's say, taking the name of the Lord in vain, we hear that so often. Maybe you've done that as well. You hear the name of Jesus in a curse word very flippantly. We don't even, it's because people think Jesus is nothing. He has no authority. He has no power. He's not Lord. He's not God. He's irrelevant. But my friends, one day, Every single time that happens, there will be an accounting for that. There will be. There will be a day where he will come as judge. And when he comes as judge, as we see here, this very God who has the power to take the very dead of this world and bring them to life, that God is going to hold to account every single word that God, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Whether they want to believe it or not, it will happen. So you must never ever think that this world, no matter how chaotic it becomes, no matter how lost, crazy, 
no matter how difficult, no matter what government is in control, that somehow God has lost his way. He doesn't know what he's doing. This passage, verses 21 through 29, shows us this is the end of the days. God is sovereign. He's in control. His name is Jesus. And he will reign. He is reigning, and he will reign forever. So we need to consider who he is as king, as judge. And may I give this warning. You do not want to face this judge one day before his throne of judgment without his shed blood covering you. If you remember the story, perhaps, of uh, the 10 plagues, and the 10th plague was the death of the Egyptian firstborn son. And so the only way that that death would be overlooked, not overlooked, but would be dealt with was that a lamb's blood would cover the lamppost. And so when the angel of death would pass over each house, if that angel saw the lamb's blood on that lamppost, he would decide, I'm going to let this son live because this son has been atoned for by this blood. It's not that the Jews had some special sort of uh, provision. It's that they were atoned for by blood. My friends, that's nothing compared to what you will see when you see the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment. You do not want to go before him without the covering of blood over you, his blood shed for you. Because what happened to those Egyptian firstborn sons is that they were killed. But that is far better, if you can imagine, than what a person faces when they see the Lord face to face one day and they do not have the covering of the blood of the lamb. We must never forget whom we worship. We worship the Lord God, King, Sovereign. His name is Jesus. And the world detests him. But one day they will bow down to him. And so you have a choice. You're either going to bow down today or one day before him. But today you bow down covered by his blood and forever free. But if you should see him without that blood, there is a real danger for your soul forever and ever. Do not face him that way. Second, there is nothing Satan or hell or demons can do to keep a believer of Christ from finishing the race. You know, God has saved you. If you believe in Jesus, his death, God himself died for you. He loves you. Never doubt his love. I want you to go back to this idea. The father loves the son. I mean, stop and just take a stop and think about that for a moment. The father loves his son perfectly, forever and ever. There's no greater love than the father for his son. Now I want to give you a second statement. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved you that he gave his son for you. How does God love his son, but then love you that he gave his son for you? A lot of us get hung up with this idea of the justice of God. Is God just? If God is such a good God, why is there such evil in this world? 
I find that to be a relatively easy question to answer. I know some of you might think, oh, it's so hard, so difficult, the justice of God, all these bad things, all these terrible things that are happening, all these catastrophes. I really believe there's good answers for that question. You know a question I have a hard time with is the question I just asked. I don't know the answer to the question. How does the father love the son perfectly and yet God gave God loved me, a wretch, a sinner, and he gave him for me. I don't get it. Why would God do that? I will never understand that question. I will never get the answer rightly. The other questions are easy answers. But my friends, I hope you wrestle with that question. You have to stop there and think, how can God do this? How can he love me so? This is a foundational truth that every Christian, if you really see that, you will fall on your knees and you just simply say, God, you are so good. You know, that song that we learn as a little child, God, you're so good, you're so good to me. And that's the, the byproduct of this idea, the triune Godhead giving everything so that I might have life. That's why we come to this table. Let's pray together. Father, we are so small in our abilities to be able to see you as you rightly are. The world mocks the name of Christ, uses it in all forms of expletives, mockery, but what we fail to see is how much you love us. We were no different. Our hearts are rebellious too. Just like a little child physically throwing a tantrum, how many times we have done that before you, O oh Lord. I pray, O oh God, especially for those who have shut their hearts to you today. Their minds are filled with all sorts of doubts, questions, areas where they think perhaps that you are unjust, you're not good enough, you're not faithful. Father, I really pray that you would open their hearts and help them to see that this passage, it just reveals so much of your love for us. And one day, oh Lord, we will see you. We will see you whether we believe in Jesus or not but I pray that we would not see you as a consuming fire, O oh Lord, but instead as sons and daughters whom you welcome, whom you love. For those who have not believed in you, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes, break their hardened hearts, soften them, O oh Lord, show them the full reality of what it means to be a son and a daughter, that the blood of Christ was shed for them. So Lord, we, we just appeal to you. We ask that you would do the work that only you can do. Salvation belongs to you, O oh Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.